morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Gordon, and others for leading us this morning. Uh, expectations. Uh, we all have them, don't we? Some of you were expecting me to continue our series in Revelation during December, and now that you know we're not doing that, we're not going there, you're disappointed, which can often happen when expectations aren't met. By the way, thanks to everyone who spoke to me and sent messages regarding the stick with Revelation or press pause and focus on Advent decision. There was a lot of feedback, and it was close, like really, really close, honestly. And some of you were quite passionate about your preference. In fact, this issue split families. Uh, but for a number of reasons, I have opted for Advent. Some of you want to go, ah, some of you are going, so good. But we've just stepped in to Advent. We're now in this season of waiting, of preparing to celebrate the first coming of Jesus and to look forward to His second coming. So there is going to be a crossover. And by the way, we, we will revert to Revelation in January, I think. No, I promise. But back to expectations, which, as I've said, we all have. We have expectations of others. We have expectations of ourselves. And sometimes those can be good and healthy, and sometimes not so much. I wonder how many of us carry unrealistic, unreasonable expectations of people and situations. Unfulfilled, unmet expectations. I wonder, have you ever found yourself saying things like, I expected more of him, of them. I expected better of her. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't do that, by the way. I'm just making the point that expectations are in a sense, a very real part of life. We are expectant people. It's okay, although we do need to be careful. But let me ask you another question. What are your expectations of Christmas? Take a second and uh, finish this sentence for me, will you? I expect Christmas this year to be what? I expect Christmas this year to be busy, to be expensive, to be tiring, different, difficult, quiet, brilliant, painful, commercialized, restorative. What are you expecting? I'm pretty sure we all have certain expectations for and of this time of year. But what I want us to remember, what I want to reinforce is that Advent is ultimately a season of expectation. It's a time for getting ready for something. It's a period of preparing to mark and celebrate an event, an intervention, an arrival that people had been expecting for years. And yes, at times, those expectations felt unrealistic. And over time, there must have been moments whenever disappointment kicked in regarding unfulfilled expectations. 
But on that very first Christmas, which we get to revisit and relive every single year, on that very first Christmas came the fulfillment of ancient expectancy. People's expectations, the whole world's expectations were met, not necessarily or entirely in the way they thought or imagined, but nevertheless, they were met. And so for Advent this year, we're going to do a series called Great Expectations. Because those concerning the coming of Jesus are exactly that. They are the greatest expectations of all time. And we're going to reconsider how those expectations played out, how they were fulfilled, who was involved in their fulfillment, and how the coming of that long-expected Jesus impacted their lives back then, and how His coming still impacts or can impact each of ours. And so I pray that during these next three weeks or so, we will manage our expectations of others and of ourselves and of this time of year. We'll manage those expectations well, but that each of us will enter into Advent 2023 with open eyes, with seeking minds, with curious hearts, prepared to recall and rejoice in the great expectations regarding the first and second coming of Jesus to this world, to you and to me. Now, to do this is going to require time. Time out. Time apart. Time on your own before and amidst the busyness of every day. It's going to require time to read those Advent devotional books that many of us have picked up. It's going to require time to reflect, time to focus, time to dial down the distractions, time here with others in worship and contemplation as we retell Christmas stories. But without taking time, without making time, without spending time, it's probably all going to just go past in a blur. And so I encourage you to make a decision early doors. I encourage you to make a decision this morning, 3rd of December, first Sunday of Advent, to journey through Advent with expectancy, with your eyes open, with your minds attentive, and with your hearts engaged. So here's great expectation number one, and a relook at a key person in the fulfillment of it. If you have God's Word in front of you, you want to turn to Isaiah 7. This is verse 14. We're just going to read one verse in there, and then we're going to jump to Luke 1, if you want to keep your finger in both those parts or ready to flick over in your phone to whatever. So Isaiah 7, 14, we read familiar words. They were said 700 years before the first Christmas. We know them well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I know that in part... That was fulfilled in the birth of Isaiah's son. We all know that. But it was so much bigger than that. Because it was also a prediction, it was also an expectation regarding the future birth of another son, a greater son, one who would be born to a virgin who would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And over the years, that great expectation grew and grew and grew. 
It embedded, it became embedded in people's hearts and minds. They waited expectantly. They longed for the day whenever the promised one would come. And then one night, decades and decades and decades down the line, a girl, a virgin, receives a visit from a heaven-sent messenger confirming that she's about to fall pregnant. She's about to become an expectant mother. And the child, the son in her womb, is going to be none other than that long-expected Jesus, the Son of the Most High. Great expectations were being fulfilled on what we now know as the first Christmas. But how were they fulfilled? Well, Luke 1, 25 to 38 tells us, and again, I realize this is such a well-known text, but please attempt to hear it afresh this Advent. So as we often do here at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. So in the sixth month, this is great expectations being fulfilled. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord's with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. And he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Do you have a seat? And so that, that virgin that is referred way back, way, way back in Isaiah is finally identified. She's introduced. And she's someone called Mary. And she lives in some place called Nazareth in Galilee. And she's about to be married to a guy called Joseph. And he's a descendant of David. There's nothing overly arresting, in a sense, about this young woman until you read the next two things about her. Although it is significant that the person who says these two things to her is none other than the angel Gabriel, who's been sent from God. So this is a kind of history-defining moment. This is a very special event. But what does that angel say about Mary? Well, he says two things. One, you're highly favored. And second, the Lord's with you. Now, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, God doesn't have favorites as such. But what's immediately apparent and abundantly clear is that this young woman's incredibly special. She's incredibly precious to God. And God is tangibly close to her. He's near. And without forcing a thought for the sake of it, this is actually also true of you and me here this morning. You are precious in God's sight. You are precious in God's sight. He values you highly. And he is right here with you now. 
And the reason that I can say that, and the reason I can be confident that is because of Christmas. God so loved the world that he sent. God loves you so much that he sent. And he sent one called Emmanuel, which means God is with you. And therefore, if you're here this morning, for whatever reason, you don't sense or appreciate how God feels about you. You don't reckon God is close to you. Then I encourage you to think of Mary. I encourage you as you prepare expectantly during this season that you realize what we're preparing for. The fact that God loves you so much and he's with you. And let me push this a little further. The word favor here is the word grace. Mary was highly graced. She was the recipient of God's amazing grace. And one definition of grace, as we've said many times, is unmerited favor. And that is what God brings into the life of this young woman. She didn't warrant it. She didn't deserve it. But God's grace, his all-encompassing, one-way love came crashing into her life. And it transformed it. And it set in motion the birth of Jesus. And that grace is still reaching out. It's still on top. It's still coming, crashing towards each and every one of us. Let me read you something I've read before about God's inexhaustible grace in an exhausted world. Now, this is dense, I know it is, but please stick with me. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. The cliche definition of grace is unconditional love. It's a true cliche, for it is a good description of the thing. But let's go a little further. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it's got nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever those might be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. And Mary was highly graced. And this morning, that grace is reaching out to you and me, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you are. This one-way love of a gracious God who loved us so much that he sent Jesus into this world for you. It's extended. It's available. It's charging towards you. Grace is a love coming at you that has nothing to do with you, the beloved, but has everything to do with the lover. Well, back to the virgin, because she, like maybe some of us, are confused by these words. You're highly favored. I'm with you. And Mary's confused by this affirming greeting. She's troubled. She's bothered by it. And so Gabriel says to her, look, don't be afraid. And then he re-emphasizes the first thing he says to her. He says, for you have found favor with God. 
And for some of us, like Mary, we need to be reminded again and again that we're highly and passionately and completely loved and valued because we don't always believe it. We don't. We sit here this morning, we look at him and think, surely God loves that person more than he loves me. He doesn't. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. One of the reasons I think that Mary had such a hard time wrapping her head around this truth is that Mary's life was characterized, her attitude was characterized by one thing, and that was humility. She was genuinely surprised that someone, that anyone would say things like this to her. Mary's humility becomes increasingly apparent in this story because you know that whenever she does finally burst into song, one of the lyrics she sings is this. That's no, not there. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She was a humble girl. There was no hint of pride or arrogance in her heart and her demeanor. And yet we live in this world, we live in this culture, we live in this context where it is all about me and where I am at the center of my world and where it's me first and where it's me doing what I want to do, but Mary's humble response and reaction to Gabriel's positive comments. You're highly favored, Mary. God's with you. Her response is just so challenging. And if Mary's finding it hard to come to terms with Gabriel's opening remarks, you can understand why the next bit, which is the main message, why the next bit sparks so many more questions in Mary's heart and mind. And so we're back to the great expectation. Verse 31, behold, here's my main message to you. Behold, you will receive, conceive in your womb and your bear a son and you're gonna call his name Jesus and he'll be great. And he'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now I'm convinced that Mary heard nothing beyond you will conceive and bear a son. We know she heard nothing beyond that given her next question but we need to pause. We need to stop. We need to take a deep breath. We need to allow every other phrase after the first phrase to settle, to find a dwelling place, a resting place in our hearts and minds. We need to hear it. Because the one that Mary is going to carry in her womb for nine months, the one who has been the focus of great expectations for years and years, is now described and revealed in stunning terms. And these names and these descriptions of him explain why his coming and why his birth and why his arrival and why he changed history, why he changed his lives and why he changes everything. And so let's just work our way through it. And so one, he's going to be called Jesus. It just means savior. It means God saves. Yes, according to Isaiah, his name's also going to be Emmanuel. That's also true. But this long-expected one, the one that, Mary, you're going to give birth to, he's coming on a rescue mission. And his name makes that abundantly clear. And so as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, celebrate salvation, 
The second thing Gabriel says about him is he's going to be great. It's a simple phrase, but it's a profound reality. And Jesus was great. And he is great. He's our great high priest. He's a great physician. He's a great teacher. He is the great I am. And so he was able to say, I am the light of the world. And I am the truth, the way, and the life. And I am the true vine. And I am the bread of life. And I am the good shepherd. He will be great, Mary. He is great. He is the coin of phrases. One of our service leaders reminded us recently, he is the greatest of all time. And as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, we celebrate greatness of the one who came for us. And then Gabriel adds another name. He says he's going to be called the son of the Most High, and Most High is just simply a title for God. And so the one you're carrying, Mary, the one that you're going to give birth to is the son of of God, the actual and only Son of God. And so as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the fact that whenever Scripture says God so loved the world that He gave, He really did. And Gabriel announces it. The one you'll carry, Mary, is going to be the Son of the Most High. Gabriel's not finished, and the Lord will give to him a throne of his father, David. There's so much going on in that phrase, but at the very least, as we sang a moment ago, we can conclude that this baby's going to be a king. He's going to be enthroned. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be worshipped. He's going to be served, and he's going to reign, not temporarily, not for a certain period of time, but forever, and off his kingdom, off his rule and off his reign, there's going to be no end. This Christmas child, Mary, that you're going to carry is Savior, He's great. He's God's son. He's king forever. And as we journey through Advent, I hope and pray we will not miss. We will not downplay. We will not allow anything else to overshadow the sheer scale and scope and significance of the baby whose birth it's really all about. Because remember, it's all about Jesus. May our expectations rise. May they go through the roof. But back to Mary, because I'm not entirely sure she got any of that. Because her first response to Gabriel isn't around the identity of the amazing kid she's about to carry. It concerns the very fact she's going to have a child. Mary's question is technical. Uh, How is this going to work, given that I'm a virgin? Thankfully, Gabriel doesn't leave that question hanging. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't avoid it, although his answer is a bit out there. To say the least, humanly speaking, it's a bit of a mind wrecker. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Nothing about Mary's conception is normal or natural. But that's okay. Because the one who's overseeing it, the one who's causing it, is the creative genius behind all of life. If anyone is going to override the natural process of procreation, then it is the one who created it in the first place. And so the virgin birth, or more accurately, the virginal conception of Jesus is supernatural. It's a supernatural miracle. And even that in itself is worthy of our awe and our worship each and every advent. But again, Gabriel isn't finished because while he's on the subject of unlikely pregnancies, Did Mary know, love this, did Mary know that her cousin who was old and according to everyone is barren, 
Did Mary know that Elizabeth's now 26 weeks pregnant? And Mary's head must have been spinning. She's a virgin. She's going to conceive. And her cousin Elizabeth, who's like old, and everybody says she's barren. She's six months pregnant. And then Gabriel's got one more thing to say. But what a thing. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, do we believe that? Like, honestly, do we? Do we expect God to do the impossible? It's one of those phrases, in fact, we, we know, we read, we've heard before, and yet, I'll be honest, I really struggle to come to terms with it. Because you see, my tendency to box God, my tendency to limit God is frightening. I look at situations, some of them in this room, in our world, and I'm convinced they're impossible. And yet I read this that nothing will be impossible with God. And so I need to hear this afresh during Advent. I need to remember it because if the Christmas story is true, if the great expectation of a virgin giving birth to a son, and this particular son in, uh, it has been fulfilled, and if the, uh, an elderly woman who has been declared barren can get pregnant against all odds, then, if all that is true, then my limitation of God is mad. It's mad. And I don't know what impossible situations you're facing right now, personally at home, or in your workplace, or amongst friends, or whatever. But this Christmas, as part of your journey through this season, why not give those situations over to God and see what happens? Why not talk to God about those situations and trust Him with those situations and with those people? Why not dare to expect God to do the impossible? Well, Mary's response is deeply humbling again and inspiring. She just says this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The submission and the surrender is staggering. Her obedient reactions, nothing short of mind-blowing. Mary has just listened to some of the most incredible, some of the most demanding, dangerous words from God. Life-changing words. Words that were going to create all kinds of problems for her. Words that were going to alter the course of her very life. Words that were going to impact her immediate and her long-term future. Words that were going to cause her potential ridicule and abuse and rejection. And yet Mary just grasps them. And she accepts them. And she commits herself to them. Because it would seem that being an obedient servant of the Lord was a high priority for this girl. That's what really mattered to her. And as I've been reflecting on that again this week, I do find myself challenged about my response and reaction to God's word. Because I believe God continues to speak. 
I believe God continues to communicate his word into my life. His incredible, life-changing, life-giving, life-demanding word into my life. But I'm not so sure my posture is like that of Mary's. My response is not always one of submission and surrender. And so Mary's example here on how to receive the word of God, irrespective of its implications, irrespective of its demands and its stretch, is a model. And so the question I want to finish with this morning is, how are you and I responding to God's word this morning? How do you respond to it? How do you hear it from God? With open hearts, with open hands, with open minds, in submission and surrender, saying, okay, God, you who can do the impossible, I hear what you're saying, I know what you're asking, but am I going to be your obedient servant? Great expectations were fulfilled on that first Christmas. And those involved in their fulfillment, like Mary, can and should affect how we approach Christmas this year and every year. And so back to my earlier question, what are your expectations for Christmas 2023? What are your expectations of Christmas 2023? Well, I pray that they may be heavily influenced by great ones. Heavily influenced by great ones. And may you take time to fully invest in, to fully enter into the season of expectation. We're going to stand. Next week, we're going to look at another expectation, but we're going to stand and we're going to sing, Behold Our God. Let's do that. Let's stand together.